to sit down. Let me uh, add my welcome to John's. Great to be with you again this morning, particularly anyone who's visiting uh, here this morning. It's a great joy to be able to welcome you. I hope you'll be able to stay around at the end and make yourself known to us. Can I ask you to reach for a Bible? If you're in one of the, the Red Church NIV Bibles, we need to be on page 961. That's Malachi chapter 2. I've been thinking and praying and swithering about um, which passage to look at with you this morning. And this is where my heart has settled. We're about to begin a new series in Malachi in St. Andrews next week. And uh, this has been a passage that's spoken to me in particular over the last couple of weeks. So if you're on page 961, we've prayed in song, but I'll pray again and then read God's word to us. We know, almighty God, that you esteem the one who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles before your word. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would give us hearts and minds that are receptive to your word this morning, and that you might bend our wills, that each one of us in our own way, in our own circumstances, might live in the light of what you say. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament written three, four hundred years before Jesus turned up. The spiritual temperature of the people of God in the book of Malachi is pretty woeful, if I'm honest. If you wanted a, a verse that summarizes what's going on, in chapter 3, verse 7, God says to the people, Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and not kept them. And they are in a hopeless state. They've forgotten the love of God. They think it's pointless to be among his people. And in every area of the nation's life, things are going wrong. That's true in the people, and it's true in the leaders, as we'll see. And God's message to them in verse 7 there, return to me, and I will return to you. It's not too late to come back. And that's very much the tone of chapter 2, 1 to 9, that we're going to read together now. And now this warning is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned away from the way, you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters 
of the law. It'd be great if you might keep that open in front of you. And our subject this morning is the, the teaching of God's word. It's obviously a subject that's very close to my own heart, but it should be of first importance to all of God's people, uh, and especially, I would guess, in a time of vacancy in a church as we're going through at the moment. We know from Psalm 19 that God's word itself is perfect and pure and firm and righteous and trustworthy and radiant. Isaiah says the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And God's word is powerful to accomplish his will. It's like the rain that falls from the heavens because it never returns to the Lord empty, but always succeeds in bringing life and accomplishing his eternal purposes. The psalmist says that God's word refreshes the soul and makes wise the simple. It gives light to the eyes and joy to the heart. The New Testament adds that it corrects us and teaches us and rebukes us and trains us in righteousness. God's word is like a a double-edged sword that divides us right down to bone and marrow. It's like a hammer that breaks down the hardness that can grow in our heart. It's like a lamp that directs our path and like a spotlight that trains our focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's word is precious, more precious than much pure gold. It's sweeter than honey from the comb. And so throughout the Bible, God's people are to love his word, to delight in it. We meditate on it day and night. We crave it in the way that a baby craves its mother's milk, not just as an end in itself for academic purposes, but because we want to know God and we want to walk in his ways. And God's word is how he works to reveal himself to us. It's how he brings us to new life in Christ. It's how he grows us in our salvation. And therefore, the teaching of God's word really matters. It's not to be twisted or distorted or added to or subtracted from, because that would be shameful, the Bible says, but to be guarded, rightly divided, we read from 2 Timothy, taught, preached, proclaimed, In humility, the truth of it is to be set forth plainly and all for God's glory. And God delights in the right teaching of his word. It is of first importance for all God's people. That's pretty much the the message that God has for us this morning. And it comes to us in Malachi 2 in terms of a, a contrast between what God wanted to be happening among his people through his priests on the one hand, and what was actually happening in Malachi's day. And the passage is structured a bit like a sandwich. You've got the ideal bit in the middle, and then what was going wrong on either side. And we're going to have those two headings. We'll start with the meat. I'm calling it the the godly pattern, or salad, whatever else it is you like to put in your uh, sandwich these days. For me, the, the steak in the middle, the godly pattern of true instruction. Why we read again from verses 5 to 7 to get it there. My covenant was with Levi, God says, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he did. He revered me and stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. This covenant with Levi gets mentioned just before our bit in verse 4 and just after it in verse 8 as well. And back in the day, God set apart the whole tribe of Levi as people who would work for him generally. And then within that, there was one clan, those descended from Aaron, who would be the actual priests. And in the simplest terms, we can think of the, the priests in Israel as being middlemen between men and God. Uh, Two sides to that. They represented people to God as they prayed for them and especially as they offered sacrifices on their behalf. And they represented God to people by teaching his word to them. Deuteronomy 33 says, They, the priests, shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. We probably think a bit more about their job of offering sacrifices, but both were important. And here's the thing in Malachi's day, both were going disastrously wrong. The, the second half of chapter one is a criticism of the, the offerings that they were bringing, not the pure animals they were supposed to bring, but any old roadkill they could find around the place. That was good enough for God, they thought. And now our passage attacks their teaching too. But in these Middle verses is the the highlight, if you like, of the teaching job that the priest should have been doing. I've got four M's for us as we summarize their job description. The, The first is the man himself. And all through the Bible, who the preacher is matters as much as the content of his message. Here in verse five, it's right for the priest to revere God. And Levi actually did. He stood in awe of God's name. Being a priest wasn't a a nine-to-five job for him. The thing that defined him as a person was that he lived in reverent humility before God and sought to honor his name. It, It was laid on his heart that he would honor God as God. And so that inner fear then shaped his external life inevitably. Verse 6 says, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. He didn't just talk the talk, but like Enoch and Noah and Abraham before him in the Bible, he walked with the Lord, personally pursuing a life of godliness. Reminds me of the, the Apostle Paul saying to some of the congregations, you know how I lived among you, because his life was one of transparent, observable godliness to the people among whom he ministered. He would say to Timothy, you're to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And that priority of godliness in the the teacher of God's word has its origin here in the role of the priest in the Old Testament. Second, the message, the man, the message. Glance at verse 6 again. True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. And the thing about a messenger, I guess, is that they have one job 
and one only. So if someone says to you, could you please uh, do me a favor and, and pass on an urgent and important message to John Ferguson here. There are a whole heap of things that, that don't matter at all uh, for the next little while. It doesn't matter what your hair looks like today or how trendy you are. It doesn't matter how many followers you've got on Instagram. It doesn't even particularly matter much whether John likes the message you've got to give to him. The only thing that matters is that you pass on the message, the whole message, and nothing but the message. And so the priest in verse 7 was literally, the word is to, to guard knowledge. Uh, if you think of, the, of a policeman or a soldier standing on guard to protect something as precious as the crown jewels, well, the teacher of God's word guards what God has revealed about himself. And he does it. It's his lips, did you notice, that guards the knowledge. He does it as he proclaims that truth to others and passes it on faithfully. So it's not the teacher's job to be innovative and to try and come up with a new message for a new generation. It's not their job to be selective, to, to stand in judgment over what is, God has revealed and just decide which bits they like and which bits they don't. They have no right to twist or to distort the message. They've got one job, and that is to pass on the whole counsel of God in all of its riches and in all its right proportions according to the needs of the people in front of them. Just think with me again why that matters so much. If God's word is where he reveals himself to us, then if a, a teacher were to twist God's word necessarily he's presenting his hearers with a distorted picture of God. If God's word is how he saves people, then if a teacher abandons God's word and preaches a different message, then they're denying the hearers a chance of salvation. If God's word is how he grows people, then when a teacher is an unreliable messenger, then they're consigning their hearers at best to a lifetime of spiritual malnutrition and stunted growth and to missing out on the joy of an intimate relationship with the Lord. And our third M reminds us that the stakes are really that high. The end of verse 6 says that whenever a priest did his job properly in Israel, he turned many from sin. That's the, the goal in all of this. Uh, the book of Genesis speaks of sin crouching at the door and looking to gain mastery over us. The New Testament, the Apostle Peter speaks about the, the sinful de desires we have which wage war against our soul, even as Christians. And one key way that God guards his people against the sin that so easily entangles us is again through the teaching of his word. One commentator compares the priest here to a lighthouse. The means by which light shines out from God's word so that it turns many away from destruction on the rocks of sin. And I sometimes wonder, well, where would I be if God hadn't put into my life people who would teach me the truth of God's word as it really is? And the answer is shipwrecked. Badly many times over. 
In that way, fourth and final M, the priest was a means of God's blessing to others. Their job wasn't just a, a, a job or a hobby. Uh, Go on to verse 5. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. Life there is something like uh, the joy of life or life in all of its fullness. Peace is shalom, it's wholeness. And God in his grace first gave those great blessings to the priest personally, but then used him to extend that blessing out to the people as he spoke God's word. And when he stood in front of God's people and prayed over them, May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's just a brief survey, those four M's, but I hope we've seen that God's covenant with Levi, the work of his priests, was absolutely essential to the wholeness and to the spiritual well-being of God's people to their knowledge, to their enjoyment of God. That's not because there was anything particularly special about the priests as people. They were sinners just like the rest of us. But it was through them that the living and speaking God chose to do his work. And when it worked, it was great. But in Malachi's time, it wasn't working at all. Second major heading then, the cursed reality of corrupt teaching. Let me read um, verses 1 to 3 and then 7 to 9. And now this admonition or this warning is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will, smear, I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And on to verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you haven't followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. So the priest's whole life and work in the days of Malachi was a catalogue of failure. They were meant personally to walk in righteousness, but verse 8 says they turned aside from the way. They were meant to guard knowledge. But verse 9 says they hadn't followed. They hadn't, literally, they hadn't guarded that word again, God's ways. Maybe worst of all, they were meant to turn many from sin, but they were doing the opposite, says verse 8. They were causing many to stumble by their instruction. And the summary's there at the end of verse 8. You violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Word violated is used when, when something becomes so damaged that it's rendered useless. If you get an eye injury and you can't see out of it anymore, it's used like that. And God is saying, your priests have rendered my covenant useless. You've, you've blocked the channel of my blessing to my people. Some friends of mine were struggling with a moral issue. Uh, they knew they needed help, so they went to see their minister. 
But instead of uh, teaching them God's word in a gracious and gentle way, the minister said to them, you don't, you don't need to worry about what the Bible says in that area of life. It's fine. Just be true to yourself. It's out of date. We've moved on. And so he caused my friends to stumble by his instruction. Another friend had a theological issue. He was struggling with the idea that Jesus claims to be the, the only way to God. It's a big and a complex issue. But he was relieved, so relieved, to find teachers who claimed to be evangelical, who said, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter which faith you're a part of. God will save you in the end. And by not guarding knowledge, those teachers caused my friend to turn aside from God's way. And some would say, does it really matter all that much? Surely what matters is that we're good, kind people. So what if someone wants to pick and choose which bits of a 2,000-year-old book they want to teach or to obey? By way of answer, here are two applications. First, a warning to teachers of God's word. A warning to teacher of God's word. Uh, That was the, the primary application to the priests themselves, Verse 1 says, now you priests, this admonition, this warning is for you. Again, verse 4, you'll know that I've sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. And the, the warning itself is in between. If you don't listen, if you don't resolve to honor my name, says the Lord of hosts, that is, if you don't repent of the way that you've corrupted my covenant, then the most terrible shame is coming. We may be a bit confused about the tenses here. Do you see that in the next couple of uh, verbs, they're all in the future. I will send a curse on you. I will curse your blessings. But then they switch. Yes, I've already cursed them because you haven't resolved. It's back to the future in verse 3 and back to the past again in verse 9. It's actually a bit simpler than it might at first appear, I think. God has pronounced his curse on their corruption. And the priests are starting to feel the effects of it. If they refuse to heed God's warning, then things will get even worse. But for now, there is this one last chance. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. And the disaster that is coming is truly terrible. God says, I will curse your blessings. For you personally, priests, I will plague even the happiest and the best bits of your life and professionally too when you're standing up front pronouncing my blessings really you'll just be pouring out a curse like a doctor who thinks he's about to give medicine but is in fact about to inject poison we'll just look at verse three i will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. That word awful um, refers to, to everything that would have been left behind when an animal was sacrificed. So all of its innards, along with any dung or excrement that it had left behind while it was waiting. And uh, Leviticus taught explicitly that all of that had to be gathered up, taken outside the camp, and burnt because it was so unclean and defiled. And God says to these priests who prided themselves on their high social status and their access to the temple, 
I will take all of that awful and filth and I will smear it on your face so that you need to be carried off outside the city and so that you will be left abased and despised before all the people because in my eyes that is how filthy you have become and how far you've fallen. And verse 3 has a sense of imminence about it. I am on the verge. I'm right on the edge of doing this. But God's own moral desire is different. What he wants to do in verse 4 is not to curse, but to continue his covenant with Levi. And that's why he's speaking in love through Malachi to summon these priests back to the job that they should have been doing all along. Now in the New Testament, the, the church minister or the preacher isn't in exactly the same role as the priest of the Old Testament. There isn't a, a covenant with Bible teachers in the same way. But the function of the role within the people of God is very similar. And this warning gives us a clear sense of what God would say to anyone who presumes to instruct others in God's name, but whose life or doctrine falls short of the standard of God's word. Imagine someone in Scotland coming under some kind of conviction. They don't know quite why, but they've started worrying about what's going to happen to them when they die. And they think to themselves, what I need to do is I need to go to church. And so they find the nearest church just down the road. And they walk in and they say to the minister, I'm, I'm worried. I know that there are bad thoughts in my head and evil in my heart. And I'm, I want to know how I can be safe. I'm worried what's going to happen to me when I die. And the minister says, guilt's such a negative emotion. You don't need to worry about that. You were baptized. When you die, you'll go straight to a better place. Another church or church leader deliberately chooses to set aside the authority of the scriptures and to teach their congregation a morality that flatly contradicts what God has said. And the world says, it's great, the church is keeping up with the times. And the minister says, I'm so glad you approve. And God says, I will spread dung on your face and you will be cursed and despised and humiliated. In the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And, and if someone were a teacher of God's word, and in either life or doctrine, they've already departed from God's biblical pattern of ministry, then to the extent that I've done that, I need to heed this gracious warning from God. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they made their hearers and followers twice as much sons of hell as they were. But return to God and he will return to you. Or maybe someone's a teacher of God's word and, or they want to be in the future and, and in your life you know that you are battling for faithfulness. Whether you're a formal upfront minister or you're a teacher in a CU context or in a pastoral group or you're meeting up to read the Bible one-to-one -one with a friend or you teach in Sunday school, there's a reminder for all of us to keep a close watch upon our life and our doctrine. Paul says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Or maybe you look at the wider church 
And you wonder, how is it that all over the world, false teachers twist and deny God's word and they get away with it? Where is the the God of justice? Why does he not do something? May today remind us that God cares deeply about the teaching of his word. And one day he will rise in judgment against false teachers. A warning. A guide for us as we look for a new minister. But it's right for us to end not with a warning, I think, but with worship of the one I'm calling the perfect priest. Might I read from verse 6 again with just a minor tweak to make the point? True instruction was in Jesus' mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with God in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. The lips of Jesus preserved knowledge perfectly because he is the ultimate messenger of the Lord Almighty. And therefore all people should seek instruction from his mouth. We can't read Malachi and the failings of their priests without thanking God for our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a man, Peter said of him, he committed no sin, neither was any deceit on his mouth. His message, too, was flawless. One particular sin of these priests in verse 9 was showing partiality in their instruction. They were allowing the rich to get away with exploiting the poor. In, there's a fascinating little note in Luke 20. The spies of the chief priests approach Jesus and say, We know that you speak and teach rightly. We know that you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. It didn't matter who was listening. The truth was taught. And Jesus alone came from heaven. Jesus alone knows God perfectly. He was filled and anointed with the Spirit, so that as the Apostle John put it, he might utter the very words of God. I take it we're right then to worship Jesus, our perfect, faithful priest. We're right in, in the terms of verse 7 here to seek instruction from his mouth. God says of Jesus, this is my son, listen to him. And I know that when we open the Bible sometimes, it feels dry. It's your experience, isn't it? It is mine. And God feels distant. And I know that sometimes the idea of coming to church feels like too much effort. Well, the idea of being a part of a small group, a pastoral group, feels like a, a bridge too far. I've just got too much going on in my life. And I know that sometimes the preacher manages to make God's word sound boring. It's a great scandal that that is. But the words of Jesus are perfect and pure and firm and righteous and trustworthy and radiant. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the words of Jesus will stand forever. And they refresh the soul and they make wise the simple and they give joy to the heart and light to the eyes because he is the messenger of the Lord, the true messenger of the Lord. We're then to be like those, like Mary in Luke 10, not distracted and anxious and troubled by, by many things, but sitting at his feet and listening to his word. That's our great privilege. When we gather in our small groups, 
when we come together on a Sunday, when we open the Bible and read it for ourselves. And the teaching of God's word is not an arbitrary thing. I've got to be clear in our generation. It's not just the, the pet emphasis of one church or another. It's of first importance because that is how God has chosen to work in the world, to reveal himself, to save people, and to grow us to maturity in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to praise you for our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who not only offered the one and perfect sacrifice of himself upon the cross so that all our sins might be forgiven, but the one who taught us perfectly about you, the living word made flesh, the one in whose lips, uh, upon whose lips there was never any deceit or lies, but who always proclaimed you faithfully to us. We want to thank you for those teachers in our own lives who have taught the scriptures to us. Thank you for those even in this congregation that you've used in our lives to bring us to know you or to grow us. And we would pray that you might raise up the right man to come and lead this congregation. And then from this congregation and elsewhere, that you might raise up many more teachers of your word for this needy land. That there might be many more who guard knowledge, who teach truth faithfully, who live all that they teach, and who in turn, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, turn many from sin to walk in peace and righteousness with your blessing upon them. Do that great work, we pray, to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to close our time in song. I think we're singing from the breaking of the dawn. We are. Let's stand and sing together.